The first reading this morning is Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 27. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We'll follow on with 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Christian. Good morning again, everyone. Shall we pray? Almighty God, holy God, our Father, we come to you this morning and pray you'd bless us from your word as you speak to us and show us your will for our life. Amen. I want to tell you God's will for your life. Yes, I really do. God has spoken to me this week. It's very clear. I want to tell you what he wants for your life. Your life is going to be changed from the better as a result of what I'm about to tell you. I really, really mean it. All you've got to do is phone this number and pledge a lot of money. No, I'm joking. You don't need to do that. I won't line my pockets with this, but I do want to tell you. It's here in our Bible passage. I'd love you to have 1 Thessalonians 4 open. God's will for your life is very plain in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. <clears throat> you see? It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Or in other words, holiness. God's will for your life 
is holiness or sanctification. It's the same Greek word. We just have two different words for it in English. Holiness is God's will for your life. I wonder how you feel now that I've told you. Now that you know where your life is supposed to go. Possibly just a tiny bit disappointed. It, it's, um, it's quite a long-term aim, isn't it? It's, it's not the short-term destination that we sometimes long for. I think that's why horoscopes are often rather popular. It's, it's really nice to... If someone can tell me, ah, seek out the place beginning with A today, and you will be enormously encouraged by what happens there, then well, there's a degree of certainty to that. If I'm looking for the person wearing red, then uh, I have a degree of confidence as I go about my day looking for something in red. But if I don't have specifics, then um, to just be told God's will is holiness, there's just a chance it leaves me slightly deflated. But this is supposed to give the Thessalonian church confidence. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And it's supposed to give Christchurch Mayfair confidence. It's supposed to be give Christians in the 21st century confidence as they read it. So let me try and explain why this is so good. It's God's will, you see, is not a precisely laid path. It's not like Google Maps, you know, turn left here and then in 180 yards, turn right. It's, it's the glorious destination that God puts ahead of me. And he says, my will for your life, my unthwartable will is that you be holy. That's where I'm taking you. It's not Google Maps as a destination. And it's also, it's not just, come on, come on, come on, try harder. When I was at Bible college, uh, I had a friend, John. I shared a study with him, and um, he was much shorter than me, which um, I was quite pleased about. I don't like to be threatened in height, but he was much more muscly than me, which I really was quite threatened by. And he said, come on, Pete, while we're at Bible college, let's go to the gym every week. And there was a gym in the college. So he'd take me down to the gym, and he got me doing bench presses, which I'd never done before, and I hope never to do again. You know, when you, when you lie on the bench and, you, and he's, he's loading these weights on the bar and then he'd push out 20 bench presses like this and then he'd go, come on, Pete, it's your turn. And, I, and, he, and at the end of every set of bench presses, he'd go, come on. I'd say, no, I'm finished, I'm so tired. And he'd say, no, you can do one more, try harder. And so here we go, I'd go, one, two, oh, I'm tired, I can't do any more. And he'd go, come on, you can do one more. And he'd always try and make me do a third one and I'd just put the bar back on the shelf. When God says that my will for your life is holiness, this is not him saying, come on, try harder, you can do another one. Rather, it is his unthwartable will. It is what he wants for your life. And I don't know if you've noticed, but God is God. And when he wants something, he can get it. He can get you there. Try this example. I think of it rather like uh, Meghan and Harry getting married, uh, what is it, this month now. And I imagine there might be a letter that appears... Uh, through Megan's postbox or whatever they have, uh, that says after the wedding, dear Mrs. Windsor, dear Megan, it is the Queen's will that you attend Balmoral this summer. I'm not familiar with all the ins and outs of the royal family, but I imagine that's something you are just going to do. The Queen says come to Balmoral this summer to be with the family. You go to Balmoral. It is the Queen's will. So too, God says, look, I want to take you to be holy with me in my palace forever, and it is my will. I will get you there. So come on and join with my program. I wonder what your will for your life is. I think many Londoners, many Brits, in fact, they, they often live for comfort, and it's what I catch myself living for all the time, just a little bit more. More and more and more comfort, please. Nice things. A comfortable lifestyle. 
But the Thessalonian church had something else that had got hold of them. It had taken a grip on their life so that actually comfort faded into the background and this filled their vision. And it was being holy, going to be with God one day. Just look at verses 1 to 2 with me. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. You notice that little throwaway phrase, as in fact you are doing. It's very encouraging, doing this. You're doing this anyway, God is going to get you there. Just carry on, more and more, come on. And the whole tone of Thessalonians is encouraging. If you've been here in previous weeks, remember chapters 1 to 3, that's roughly the first half of the letter, and uh, that's where Paul gives his instructions. He says, you're a legitimate church, I'm a legitimate apostle, and um, you are filled with hope as you await the coming of the Lord Jesus. In chapters 4 and 5, roughly the second half of the letter, he turns to instructions now, he's going to give them imperatives, but it's still a letter full of hope and encouragement. That phrase, uh, more and more, actually comes up twice in our passage, verse 1 and verse 10. So come on, as I encourage you, as in fact you are doing, as God gets you there, more and more, holiness. Just to be clear, I'd hate you to mishear me this morning. Uh, This isn't the sum total of the Christian life. The whole of the sermons we preach here and the whole of this book is not, come on, just more and more holiness. That, That is what we're hearing today, but it's not the sum total. I'll put it here on the screen. Three long words that are beautiful in the Bible, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is that moment at the beginning of my Christian life when I put my faith in Christ and I turn from sin, and that's the decisive change. Sanctification is that, what we're talking about today, when I grow more and more in holiness. One Thessalonian says uh, a bit about sanctification as as we're seeing today. And glorification is that moment uh, when Jesus returns and I receive a glorified body and I go to be in heaven with God forever. So that's that's glory. And actually, 1 Thessalonians says a lot about glorification. Other letters of Paul say a lot about justification. 1 Thessalonians says more on glorification. The point is this. Once you put your hope in Christ, once you're justified in him, the rest is inevitable. God will get you there. So for, for Toby and for Thomas, you say baptism, baptism doesn't get them in to this process. Baptism is a sign, but faith, justification gets them into the process, and God will indeed take them to glory in the end as they become more and more holy in the meantime. Now, why is this such a good thing? Why is holiness God's will for our life? Well, we just have to understand what it means. Okay, so let me try and define it for you, holiness. It's actually it's quite hard to define. I mean, theologians have a hard time defining it. Uh, it, it, I think it conjures up, if I was sort of an advertising guy on TV, I might have a sort of halo, you know, a mysterious glow, something not quite physical, and maybe that's holiness. That doesn't actually mean anything, does it? That's just nothing. Sometimes Christians have just find it as, as being set apart. I'm set apart or consecrated to the Lord, which can work quite well if you're like a, a candlestick in a temple. I can set apart a candlestick to be used for the Lord. But it doesn't actually work in terms of God himself, because it's a relative term that's only defined in terms of the Lord. I can be set apart for the Lord. But what does it mean to say that the Lord is holy? Do you see? What does that mean? Well, I think it's better to define it very simply as being like God. 
and particularly in his perfect moral majesty. Places like Leviticus 20, 26, be holy because I am holy. So actually, it's just becoming more and more like God all the time. So when God says, that, come and be with me in my palace forever, I want to make you holy, he's really saying, it's like every good parent, every good teacher we might have had, every good boss, I have a, a magnificent vision for you, I want to grow you, and in fact, God says, come and be more like me. So let me just break this down. That's the nub of the sermon, but let me break it down into two things that the apostle says. Firstly, more and more holiness regarding sex. Secondly, more and more love regarding work. Okay? The first point's uh, much more substantial, as you would expect from the weight of the verses. Okay, so firstly, more and more holiness regarding sex, verses 3 to 8. And yes, I really am going to talk about sex at a baptism service. Uh, wouldn't have been my first port of call, but uh, the Bible goes there, so the preacher goes there. Okay? Look at verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, as we've seen, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That's the headline for this section, this section avoid sexual immorality. The Thessalonian church, they were in Greece. They'd been converted in a flurry. We know that Paul was there for about three weeks. That's not very long, is it? But this, this church had been planted. It had sprung up. He'd had to leave because of the riot. And um, they had all sorts of sexual ideas flying around in their culture. Presumably, Greek culture did whatever it wanted at the time. And so Paul says, I want to teach you about a Christian view of sex. Sexual immorality in verse 3, that little phrase, I mean, in the old days, they used to translate that as fornication in the old-fashioned Bibles, which is an old-fashioned word, isn't it? We might update it in ours to sexual immorality. The content of it means any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. So we know that from other things Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, particularly verse 2, where he outlines what that means, what Jesus taught in the Gospels. We know that he's talking about that there, and indeed what he was building upon in the Old Testament. Paul goes on after that, verses 4 and 5. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And look, I mean, he's not trying to be offensive there, like the pagans. You know, this is not a throwaway, oh, like those guys over there, pagan culture. I mean, that, that really was what they were. That's where we get the term pagan from. They, pagan culture, they worship their own gods. And if you became a Christian, that was a big statement that you were stepping outside the culture to worship one God, the Christian God. So, not like the pagans. Of course, if you, if you are a pagan, if, you, if you're not a Christian and you're just in London today, not believing in God, you do live in passionate lust, don't you? Nothing wrong with that as far as you're concerned. I mean, life is one long bucket list. And why not if there's no God? Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. I'll feed my passionate lusts. I'll just take all the pleasure I can get before I snuff it and close my eyes. I know. I used to think like that too. In this day and age, you can browse. You can indulge your passionate lusts just from the comfort of your own home, your bedroom, or your desk, can't you? Or my smartphone, or my laptop. It's easier than ever to be uh, passionate. And as long as it's not harming anybody, it's fine, isn't it? key difference between that worldview and the Christian worldview is here in verse 5. Not in passionate thus like the pagans who do not know God. They don't know God. 
It's the only difference between me and someone who's living a non-Christian life in this city. They don't know God. And yet that's a huge change. Because if you know God, if you know the creator of the universe, you know the peace that he brings, then everything's different. In particular, just three little things I notice in these verses. The difference that knowing God makes between the life I used to live and the life I live now. Harm, justice, and holiness. Firstly, harm. A Christian view of sex preserves others from harm, which is, of course, what our culture wants anyway, isn't it? As long as it doesn't harm anybody, do what you want. Amen. But the Christian view goes further. Verse 6 says, In this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. So you see, God builds this high view of humanity into Christianity so that not only do I look out at the human race and I think, wow, humans are amazing. I first of all look out at the human race and think, wow, humans are in the image of God. I cannot harm a human being because they are in the image of the creator and they are very, very precious, therefore. This verse actually takes it up another notch and says, don't harm a brother or a sister. They're in your family. As if that wasn't enough, being in the image of God. It's like the outrage you would feel if someone hurt in some sort of emotional or even sexual way a sibling of yours. That's the way God wants Christians to take care of people sexually. Because they're in the family. So a Christian view of sex preserves others from harm. Second little thing, uh, justice. A Christian view of sex believes in justice for all. Have a look with me at verse 6 again. Halfway through verse 6. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? It is rather easy, I think, to join in with the, with the rage and the tirade against sexual offenders on the news and yet to exclude the possibility that God might ever turn around and have anything negative to say to me. So this is saying and promising, in fact, that God will take care of every sexual offender. This doesn't just mean the big stuff that makes the law courts. It means everybody who's been manipulative. It means everybody who's been selfish and everybody who's been impure. Justice for all. That's the kind of God he is. He's even-handed and fair. God will punish men for all such sins. And you don't just reject a human being if you don't like that idea. Ultimately, you reject God. So, so the person who once said to me, like, I, I just don't like the Bible's idea of marriage. It's not attractive to me. I think I can read it in a different way. Well, I, I would have to say to them, Okay, but you're not just rejecting a pastor here. You're not just rejecting a church. You're rejecting God. Harm, justice, and thirdly, uh, holiness, which brings us full circle, doesn't it? This this is what this passage says again and again, holiness. Look at verse 7. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. God is calling the human race to something so much bigger and better than we tend to shrink it down to when we think of Christian rules about sexuality. You know what I mean? We tend to just think, okay, no sex before marriage. Try my best to avoid that. Um, I know people have rules for dating. I guess I'll make my way through that. And they're the house rules. But God is calling us to a holy life, not to be impure anymore, but to be pure. It's been that way since the Old Testament. That's why I asked Christy to read Ezekiel 36. He's been promising this for centuries. 
I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. Note the use of the word holy that we tend to just forget. Holy Spirit in you to change you and get you there to my destination. I want you to be holy. He's interested, in other words, in our whole character, in our perfect moral majesty. Think of it this way. There was an article I read uh, just this week by a teacher. And it won a prize, actually, because this was such a celebrated article by one of our teachers in this country. And uh, she was saying, Holly Jones, that grades are one way of measuring education, as we all know. And uh, in our culture, we have lots and lots of league tables and obsession over GCSEs and A-levels and what young people are achieving. But she, she was warning against the danger of just reducing it to grades. She points out that, would you employ somebody who had really, really good exam results, but they could show no empathy to another human being? You know, when you, when you put them in a room with a customer, it was just a disaster. And they had really good grades, though. Well, I'm not sure. Well, how about if you add to that, they never say thank you. It's totally ungrateful. Really good grades, though. How about if you add in the fact that they're dishonest and they steal from the company, but they've got really good grades? I mean, I don't think I'd employ that person. God is calling us to something that is not just about grades. He does, of course, want us to avoid sexual immorality and do the things that I mentioned. But he's calling us to a whole character change, a whole destination, so that we will always and for all eternity be everything that a human being was always designed to be. Everything, ever since Genesis 1, when he said, I'm going to make these people in the image of God, he's going to get us there. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's just going to do it in our lives, and he's calling us to that. I think everyone wants a sort of a parent or teacher figure who is able to get us to a, a, a great destination for our character, and not just grades. But a Christian, you have a God like that. calls us to more and more holiness regarding sex. That's our first and by far the most substantial point. Uh, just a, a note on this. I, I am not preaching a political sermon. I'm not saying, uh, Christians, go out and campaign for a Christian view of sexuality in the public square, although that might well be a wise thing to do. But this is not political. This is for the church. It's for the Thessalonian church. And it's for the church today. So this says very clearly, this is the way real Christians behave if they're on their way to heaven. So hold the church to it. More and more holiness regarding sex. Secondly, more and more love regarding work. This is verses 9 to 12. Uh, there are fewer verses here. Uh, let me read. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Did you catch the drift of this? This is a model church. It's not a rebuke. He's just saying, we just urge you to do it more and more because you're already a model to the other believers. Can I say to you, it's a, it's a pleasure to be part of a church here which I think reflects this 
well at many times. Uh, one of the real joys of my job is going to visit the home groups, and I sort of work my way around the city, just uh, dropping in on the home groups. And uh, it's wonderful to see people genuinely caring for each other, carrying each other's burdens. I would gladly bring other Christians to Christchurch Maple home groups and say, look at these guys and the way they do it. It's lovely to be part of a church graft process where actually, as we've been praying over the recent months, uh, we've really been burdened by the new congregation of St. Paul's Haringey. So wanting to carry their burdens, to love them more and more and more and sort of see ourselves as one family. There are other examples in our network of churches, in our partner churches in London. I'm sure you can name more where churches do this well. This is not 1 Corinthians 13. You know that chapter? You know, that's a beautiful sort of poetic chapter, but it's a massive stinging rebuke against the lack of love in the Corinthian church. 1 Thessalonians 4 is different. You are loving. I just urge you to do so more and more. Three quick observations. Uh, Be quiet. Mind your own business. Get on with your work. Uh, That's what he says. Not quite as negative as it first seems. Okay, be quiet. That really means not in volume. I don't think he's saying, you know, you can never be loud. That's showiness. Ostentation. So Christian, it is okay just to crack on with your work and you don't have to be noticed by your boss or on social media or by your closest rival in the office. That's okay. Just be unostentatious in your work. Mind your own business. Uh, What does that mean? Uh, Well, I think that means, well, it does mean, not meddling, not gossiping, not interfering. I'm called to love others more and more and more. So presumably, it it does mean getting involved in people's lives when I'm wanted. When I'm not wanted, that's fine. I'm prepared to mind my own business. Be quiet. Mind your own business. Get on and work with your hands, he says. Hard work. Uh, Paul, of course, was a tent maker. He was used to having calluses and cuts on his hands. He was used to hard graft. He was bivocational, so he did two jobs, and he did long hours earning a crust. Of course, when it says work with your hands in verse 11, that doesn't mean everybody who's doing a professional job where they have no calluses on their hands, like me, uh, it doesn't mean you have to go and give up that job. But it does mean you don't despise the people who do work with their hands. So churches with blue-collar workers in, as the Thessalonian church might well have been, is a very respectable church because it's a profoundly Christian thing to do, to work hard and to do it out of love for other people. The, the, the most demanding physical work I ever did was working in an egg-packing factory. Uh, much harder than it sounds. Uh, the, the eggs used to come down in their cartons on this conveyor belt, and then it was our job to put them, uh, the egg cartons in a box. You know, you'd put several in a box, and then you'd seal it up and send it on another conveyor belt for, for shipping. I worked there for a pathetically short time uh, while this was before university. But still, it was back-breaking. I'm quite tall, but every time that it came down, you had to bend down, put the eggs in the box, and then stand up again. And you imagine doing that for eight hours a day. Oh, my goodness. It was the kind of job where the bell went, and you went into the cafeteria, You had a break, the bell went again, everyone filed out again, and you started doing the same thing again. And at the end of one of those days, boy, it felt like I worked with my hands and my back and my legs and everything. I still remember the the Oxfordshire women who were, you know, they were stalwarts of the egg packing factory. They'd been there for decades. And when I finished my work there and I was sort of leaving for good, they said, you've done well, Peter, you've done well. You've done well. We thought you were going to quit straight away. 
took a certain amount of pride in that, actually. <laughs> I may be soft-handed, but I don't quit. Those women, had, they had a, a real respectable, hard-work attitude. You know, we come in every day. The alarm goes off early. We get to work. We do it. We earn a hard-earned paycheck at the end of it all, and we go away. And we, well, I don't know what they did with the money. I don't know if they were Christians. But if a Christian was in that job, they'd do exactly the same thing. They'd get the paycheck, and then they'd think, thank you, God, for this money. How can I bless other people? So you give away so that, verse 12, you will not be dependent on anybody. Three possible people you might be in the room just as we finish this sermon. Three, three possibilities for who you might be sitting there this morning. Firstly, I think you might be the person in verse 12. You might be an outsider. If you're new to Christianity, maybe you're visiting church this morning, maybe this is totally unfamiliar to you, and most of the time you're sitting there thinking, what are you going on about? Well, look, if that's you, I, you're an outsider, and we'd, we'd love to win your respect. I wonder if I could offer you a free trial. A bit like Amazon are offering me with uh, their music thing. Can I offer you a free, let's, let's call it one-month trial of church? And uh, come along here and see if it makes a difference. I'd love you to just watch the Christians around here because I think their life, knowing God, makes a difference to them. And I'd love to know if you can see it. Let me, let me offer you that trial. It's messy around here, don't get me wrong. It's not perfect, that's the whole point. That's why we need a saviour. But I'd love you to, to watch and see. So that might be you, an outsider. Um, maybe you're, you're pretty well accustomed to Christianity. You're a sort of regular around here or regular at church. Well, this is a reminder to you this morning. In verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, and verse 11, God says, um, sorry, Paul says, uh, as you know, you already know these things. This is, this is just a reminder. You already know the Christian sexual ethic. So this morning, if you're a regular, just a reminder. God will sanctify you. And therefore, let me this morning urge you just to do these things more and more. Don't give up. He will get you there. Just do it more and more. It is a lovely delight, isn't it, to meet an older Christian who hasn't given up. It's just delighting to be with heaven and God one day, to know God in the present. And they're just pushing on, learning one new thing about God at a time. Uh, so maybe you're an outsider. Maybe you're a regular here. And maybe you're a parent, godparent, family or friends of Toby or Thomas. In which case, I'd love to say to you, these kids, Toby and Thomas, are going to grow up in a generation that doesn't know 1 Thessalonians 4, by and large. They're just going to grow up around bucket lists and people satisfying their passions. I think that's what's going to happen in London in the West. So we need to not assume that they know what this says. We need parents and godparents and friends and family who are going to teach them this. Because otherwise, we're never going to get to the stage where it's just a reminder for them. It's just going to be news out of nowhere. So please, I charge you, amongst all the things you pass on to them, teach them the way Christians behave. With sex and at work. It is God's will that they are sanctified. Let's pray. Holy God. Holy, holy, holy. There's no one like you. When we come to you this morning, uh, trembling, I suppose, a little, to think that we will share eternity with you, but rejoicing that this is your will you will get us there justified sanctified one day glorified and pray for our lives father we feel the weakness of these things so much but thank you for the work of the holy spirit in us that you've promised us and we pray for each one of us that you would um, touch our lives now and in the week to come 
and help us in all these areas, we pray, to live for the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.